Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Stuart England, The Civil Wars, Episode 2.70, The Tories. At the end of last episode, I made a lot of noise about the Commonwealth finally neutralizing the military threats it had faced since its conception. Cromwell's Irish campaign in 1649-1650 eliminated the Irish threat, and he did the same in Scotland soon after. However, while Cromwell's victories had ensured that the Irish royalists posed no danger to the Commonwealth regime in England, he hadn't pacified Ireland as a whole. The job of finally snuffing out the Kilkenny Confederation and its royalist allies fell to Henry Ireton who remained in country while Cromwell rushed home to meet the Scots. Today, we're going to catch up with Ireton and see how he fared. Ireton would be donning two hats as he pursued a political mission alongside his military one. He had to snuff out the rebellion, now entering its second decade, but he also had to establish some system of governance that put Ireland under Commonwealth rule. Completing both jobs would require tremendous resources and patience. As we've seen throughout this podcast, governing Ireland was a task that all 17th century English governments struggled with. Managing the disparate factions within the kingdom was a tall order, and one that English viceroys had, at best, wrestled to a draw. You could perhaps credit Thomas Wentworth with bringing a degree of stability to Ireland in the 1630s, but considering his divide-and-conquer policies led directly to the current rebellion, that would be some very creative accounting. If anything, the Commonwealth found Ireland even more difficult to manage than the Stuarts had. The usual problems of Irish governance were compounded by the uncompromising Puritanism of the Commonwealth state, which made it poorly suited to rule over a majority Catholic nation, the financial burden of supporting a massive occupying army, and persistent ideological divisions among Westminster's representatives in Ireland. We're just going to get a taste of these problems in this episode, but they'll remain a part of our Irish story long after the war was finally concluded. To set the stage, we last left Ireland in May 1650, with Oliver Cromwell securing the town of Clonmel at tremendous cost. Uncharacteristically, Cromwell had thrown his men into a series of frontal assaults in order to capture Clonmel as quickly as possible. He had to return to England and prepare for a new war with Scotland, and wanted one last victory before he left. Within days, Cromwell was on a boat back across the Irish Sea. He left Henry Ireton, his longtime deputy, to deal with the bloody aftermath. As you may recall, before the town surrendered, the New Model Army had suffered the worst day of its brief history, at least in terms of casualties. This came at the end of a long, grueling campaign of siege work. The New Model Army had been marching around Ireland for almost a year at this point, and its once ample supplies had dwindled, especially once the Commonwealth government began ramping up for the Scottish War. Years of constant war had devastated the Irish countryside, making it difficult for the army to live off the land. Disease was rampant, both within the army and throughout Ireland as a whole. In other words, while there wasn't much chance that the rebels would defeat Ireton's army, starvation and misery might. The one thing Ireton had going for him was that the rebels were in even worse shape. Hugh O'Neill, the great Owen Roe O'Neill's nephew, had given Cromwell a bloody nose at Clonmel. But in the end, the Ulstermen had abandoned the town, adding it to the long list of losses the Confederation had suffered over the past few months. 
Drogheda, Wexford, Kilkenny, and now Clonmel, even the most cohesive of armies would have struggled to hold together in the face of so many successive defeats, and the Confederations was far from the most cohesive of armies. In fact, you may have noticed that I'm jumping all over the place in describing Ireton's enemy in this war. Were they Catholic rebels? Royalists? The Confederate Irish? The problem was, they were all these things, and more. Ireton, like Cromwell before him, was fighting a coalition of the old Kilkenny Confederation, Royalists like the Marcus of Ormond, Ulster Scots, and Lord Inchiquin's army of Protestants. Predictably, this coalition began to splinter as the defeats piled up. We actually saw this start to happen the last time we were in Ireland. Inchiquin's men had all but given up, tempted by Cromwell's offer of a full pardon and a plot of land to all Protestant soldiers. The rest of the coalition fell into squabbling and mutual recriminations. In Ulster, the Scots bickered with the Gaelic-Irish over who would call the shots now that the charismatic Owen Roe O'Neill had died. Meanwhile, the Catholic clergy used the military setbacks as an excuse to once again challenge the Marcus of Ormond, demanding his resignation as commander-in-chief and greater religious concessions while they were at it. And everyone complained about the Connaught men of the West, who had been conspicuously absent from the fighting so far. The most troubling indication of the coalition's health came in the days after Clonmel fell. Hugh O'Neill, who commanded the heroic defense of the town, slipped his men out before the civilian authorities surrendered to Cromwell. This should have been the coalition's one moment of triumph in a campaign of brutal defeats. But instead of being celebrated, O'Neill and his men were turned away when they sought refuge at Waterford. The garrison commander there was Thomas Preston, Owen Roe O'Neill's old rival in the Confederation Army. The old English Preston had always distrusted the rebellious O'Neills, so much so that he refused to open his gates to the heroes of Clonmel. The broad coalition that the Marcus of Ormond had brought together in 1649 was effectively dead. However, while Ireton and the Commonwealth certainly benefited from the divisions among their enemies, the splintering of the Royalist coalition also complicated their mission. They no longer had to defeat just one enemy. They would have to subdue all the hostile factions, one by one. Ireton's army was certainly capable of that, but it would be grueling, exhausting work. After Clonmel, Ireton had about four months of good campaigning left before winter, and he had plenty of options for his next move. Cromwell's conquests had more or less cleared the eastern part of Ireland. The Commonwealth controlled much of the south too, the one notable exception being the strategically important coastal town of Waterford, which was still in royalist hands. That left Ulster to the north, which hosted a confusing array of factions, and Connaught to the west, which was so far untouched by Commonwealth military power. As always, the situation in Ulster is going to take a bit of explaining. The Royalist coalition in Ulster consisted of two main groups. The Scottish army that had been there from almost the outset of the rebellion ten years ago, and Owen Roe O'Neill's old Ulstermen. To say that these were strange bedfellows would be an understatement. Until the threat of a Commonwealth conquest of Ireland united them, the Scots and the Gaelic Ulstermen were bitter enemies. The Scots represented Protestantism and plantation, the two things O'Neill and his men had vowed to banish from Ireland. In fact, up until recently, Owen Roe O'Neill had been working in an alliance of convenience with parliamentary soldiers against the Scots. It was only after the arrival of Oliver Cromwell that O'Neill started taking the Commonwealth threat more seriously and rejoined the Royalist coalition. But, as you know, O'Neill died soon after, keeping yet more confusion on the Ulster situation. In the spring of 1650, while Cromwell was wrapping up his Irish campaign, the Royalists faced a polarizing decision in Ulster. Who would replace Owen Roe O'Neill as the commander of the army he left behind? This was no small matter. O'Neill's Ulster army consisted of some 6,000 experienced men, making it the best instrument the Royalists had left. 
The obvious choice to be O'Neill's successor was his nephew, Hugh O'Neill. The family continuity would ensure the loyalty and morale of the men, and the younger O'Neill was himself an accomplished soldier. But politically, he was an awkward choice. The Marcus of Ormond, who was still technically commander-in-chief, didn't trust the O'Neills. And, with good reason, they had more often been enemies than allies. Meanwhile, George Monroe, the commander of the Scots in Ulster, made it clear that he wasn't willing to work with an O'Neill in the Ulster Theatre. So Hugh O'Neill was quietly removed from the running. We've actually seen one of the consequences of that decision already. Denied command of the Ulstermen, Hugh O'Neill instead headed south and took over the garrison at Clonmel. It was Hugh O'Neill who frustrated Cromwell's attempts to assault the town, perhaps demonstrating that he would have been a good choice for command in Ulster after all. With the O'Neill option out of the running, the Royalists turned to a compromise candidate. You may recall that the Confederates had previously tried this in Ulster. Back in 1643, Owen Rowe O'Neill and his longtime rival Thomas Preston had refused to work together in the field. So the Kilkenny government had settled the dispute by placing an inexperienced aristocrat in overall command. This political compromise led to military disaster, as the Confederates missed a golden opportunity to score a major victory. In 1650, the Royalist coalition repeated the mistake. The man chosen for the job was Haber McMahon, the Bishop of Clogher. McMahon, about 50 years old that spring, came from a powerful Gaelic family that had been ruined by land confiscations following the flight of the Earls in King James's day. McMahon, who was a child at the time of his family's fall, grew up on the continent. As a teenager, he entered the Jesuit college at Douai, a specialized institution that trained young men for the dangerous mission of bringing Catholicism back to the Stuart realms. There, McMahon excelled, paving the way for a future in the church. The young student also met Owen Rowe O'Neill, at that time the leading Irish officer in the Habsburg army of the Spanish Netherlands. The pair had a similar vision for Ireland, centered on the restoration of Catholicism and the return of seized Gaelic lands. In the 1630s, McMahon returned to Ireland as a clergyman, serving in the parish of Clogher in Ulster. But in addition to his pastoral duties, he also kept in touch with O'Neill, acting as a link between Ireland and the continental exile community. In fact, McMahon was involved enough in the planning of the 1641 rebellion that one of his cousins was the man who leaked news of the plot, frustrating rebel plans for a bloodless coup in Dublin. McMahon went on to play a significant role in Confederation politics. In fact, he's been in the background of much of our Irish story already. McMahon worked closely with Giovanni Rinuccini, the papal nuncio. As one of the staunchest proponents of a hardline approach, McMahon won the gratitude of the papacy and a promotion to Bishop of Clogher. This put him right in the middle of the factional conflicts within the Kilkenny Confederation. You may recall that one of the many battles between the clerical war party and the old English peace party was over a diplomatic delegation to France. Violence nearly broke out on the floor of the General Assembly when the roster was being drawn up. The Old English protested that the proposed delegation wouldn't be representing the Confederation in Paris, but rather the partisan interests of the clerical war party. The man whose inclusion in the delegation so offended the Old English faction was Heber McMahon, Bishop of Clare. McMahon was therefore not an O'Neill, which would hopefully satisfy the Scots and more moderate members of the Royalist Coalition, but he did have a long-running connection to the O'Neills and their agenda, which would hopefully qualify him to lead the Ulstermen. The political calculation proved incorrect on both counts. As far as George Monroe and the Scots were concerned, McMahon may as well have been an O'Neill. In fact, the bishop had a distant connection to the O'Neill family through his mother. Monroe flatly refused to coordinate with any army commanded by McMahon. He could not put my people in their trust, Monroe explained, whose hands be yet imbrued with our blood. The Scots would take their chances dealing with the Commonwealth alone. 
After all, the Protestants under Lord Inchigran had received generous terms from the English invaders. Why not their Scottish co-religionists, too? The decision to elevate McMahon also alienated other members of the coalition. The Marquess of Antrim had been angling for more influence in his native Ulster, and was disappointed to have been passed up. Seeing the Royalist coalition for the lost cause that it was, he headed to Dublin to surrender himself to the Commonwealth authorities there. The new Ireland Ireton was tasked with building would require men with local influence. Best to volunteer his services now, while pardons were still on the table. So the choice of Heber McMahon was a political disaster. How did he fare as a general? Here, McMahon actually caught some breaks as a rookie commander. With the main Commonwealth army further south, moving on Kilkenny and later Clonmel, McMahon didn't face much opposition in Ulster. The only enemy in the region was Charles Coote, son of the late Charles Coote, who had been the governor of Dublin at the outset of the rebellion. This younger Coote had only about 1,500 men at his disposal. Even better for the Royalists, Coote decided to rush headlong right into their much larger army. Four times as large, in fact. Perhaps Coote assumed that the Ulstermen lacked discipline after the loss of their longtime general, Owen Roe O'Neill. If so, he was proven wrong. In early June, the Royalists easily turned aside Coote's reckless attack. However, McMahon failed to deliver a counterattack, which would have likely crushed the enemy. Instead, Coote managed to withdraw to Derry, where he gathered supplies and reinforcements from the garrison there. McMahon, perhaps overconfident after his victory, ignored the advice of his experienced officers and sought out a rematch, even though much of his cavalry was off scavenging for resources. On the 21st of June, the two armies met at Scarifalis. This time, Coote was only outnumbered two to one. McMahon did his part to narrow the odds as well by deploying his men in a mass formation. Presumably, he hoped that this was the best use of his superior numbers, but it made it very difficult to maneuver once the battle began. Coote wasted no time surrounding the Royalist army, which quickly turned into a densely packed mob of terrified men. In the end, the day turned into one of the more brutal fights in an Irish war full of brutal fights. Half of McMahon's men were killed, many of them after the battle itself was over. In the aftermath of the battle, the bad blood between the plantation men in Coote's army and the Catholic Ulstermen was on full display. Coote, himself a new English planter, ordered the execution of those taken prisoner, even those who had been promised their safety as a condition of surrender. Included among them was Owen Roe O'Neill's son, Henry, who was unceremoniously beheaded. McMahon himself was wounded in the battle and captured a week later. The bishop was summarily hanged as a traitor. The royalist position in Ulster died with McMahon. The Commonwealth had scored a major victory without the need to bring the bulk of the new model army into the region. The campaign also revealed the continued fragmentation of the royalist cause. Before the battle, McMahon had called for the support of the western province of Connaught. But despite being the one corner of Ireland not under direct threat from the Commonwealth army, the Connaught men held back. Their commander, the Earl of Clan Rickard, rather lamely protested that he couldn't leave the west undefended. In the face of imminent defeat, the Royalist coalition was breaking down into its constituent elements, each of them focusing on their own survival. The Royalist debacle in Ulster gave Henry Ireton the freedom to choose his next move after Clonmel he decided to continue Cromwell's methodical campaign of capturing key garrisons, one by one. This only made sense, as Ireton had helped Cromwell craft that strategy as his number two. He had been there all through Drogheda, Wexford, and Clonmel. First up was completing the conquest of Munster. The Commonwealth Army spent all of July laying siege to Carlow, about 20 miles northeast of Kilkenny, then turned to Waterford on the coast in August. Thomas Preston, the old English veteran, quickly surrendered the town on liberal terms. He had no wish to preside over another Drogheda or Wexford. 
With these successes, the conventional military presence of the Royalists in Ireland was more or less limited to Connaught in the west. But Ireton took his time marching on the River Shannon, which divided Connaught from the rest of Ireland. That's because while the conventional Royalist armies had all been broken, smaller-scale resistance continued. These guerrilla fighters were known as Tories, an anglicization of the Gaelic word for raider. The Tories blurred the line between soldier and opportunistic bandit, causing no end of grief for the Commonwealth officials trying to impose their authority over Ireland. They were particularly active in the boggy or mountainous terrain west of Dublin, deep within supposedly conquered territory. Supply wagons were ransacked with impunity, as the attackers always disappeared before local soldiers could assemble and respond. After the fall of Waterford in August, Ireton tried to restore order by marching his main army through the hinterland around Dublin. But the Tories simply vanished, and then reappeared once the army had moved on. Such small-scale resistance didn't pose a direct threat to Ireton's army, but their ability to disrupt Commonwealth supply lines was all too real, especially if Ireton pushed deep into Connaught. The need to dot the countryside with fortified supply depots would be an unwelcome drain on resources. For now, however, Ireton had no solution to the Tory problem. In fact, since he had wasted all of September chasing ghosts, he was running out of time to conquer Connaught before winter. The reprieve gave the Royalists some much-needed time to prepare. The key to unlocking Connaught and getting across the Shannon was the well-fortified town of Limerick, near the river's mouth. Its garrison was commanded by Hugh O'Neill, the same man who had given the New Model Army a bloody nose at Clonmel. And this time, O'Neill had several advantages that he hadn't enjoyed last time. Limerick proper sat on King's Island, within the River Shannon itself. Access from the mainland was controlled by a single bridge, protected by well-fortified suburbs. Morale was high among the defenders, as they were largely the same collection of battle-hardened Ulstermen who had thrown back the English at Clonmel. They were better supplied this time, too. The Connaught countryside in their rear had been relatively untouched by war, by Irish standards anyway, and the lateness of the season meant that much of the year's harvest had already been rushed inside its walls. There was every reason to believe that the Commonwealth's run of victories would end at Limerick. Certainly Ireton saw defeat as a possibility. His exhausted men finally reached Limerick on the 6th of October, with the weather already turning. A war council of the army's leading officers quickly came to a consensus decision. An assault would be tremendously costly, and the outcome uncertain. A siege would likely drag into winter, and who knew how much food and other supplies would get through the lawless countryside in the rear. Ireton ordered a retirement to winter quarters. Limerick would have to wait until the spring. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ireton's withdrawal from Limerick was a kind of moral victory for the Royalists. They would live to fight another year, which no one had taken for granted a few months earlier when Cromwell was capturing well-fortified towns at will. But the Royalist coalition was in bad shape, if it still existed at all. In fact, by the time Ireton arrived at Limerick, the man holding the coalition together, the Marcus of Ormond, was already on his way out. Ormond had opposed the appointment of Hugh O'Neill as governor of Limerick, but his wishes were increasingly irrelevant. The Catholic clergy had been agitating for Ormond's resignation all year, and in August they pushed him to return to his continental exile. Their advice, that he speedily repair out of the country, carried with it a certain menace. 
Publicly, Ormond remained defiant, but privately he admitted that I have lost the means of balancing the parties, or of bridging them to reason. The final blow came from abroad that winter. King Charles II formally denounced the Irish as rebels, one of the concessions necessary to receive his Scottish crown. If this was no longer a royally sanctioned coalition, then what was it? And if Ormond no longer represented the king, then why should his fellow coalition members look to him for leadership? Privately, Charles assured Ormond that the denunciation was all for show, that he'd continue to support the Irish cause behind the scenes. But such personal sympathies were of little use. The clergy announced that any Catholic who respected Ormond's authority would be punished with excommunication. Ormond finally accepted reality and formally resigned from his commission to lead the king's forces in Ireland. By December, he was back in France, having failed once again to unite the maddeningly diverse people of Ireland. Like the Duke of Hamilton in Scotland, Ormond's efforts to hold his nation together had been constantly undermined by conniving monarchs and unmanageable factions, each with their own mutually exclusive demands. Though, unlike Hamilton, at least Ormond kept his head. With Ormond gone, the remaining opposition to the Commonwealth turned to a new leader, Ulick Burke, the Marquess of Clan Rickard. Clan Rickard was the leading man in Connaught, a region of Ireland we haven't spent much time in. Connaught in the West had managed to avoid much of the violence that had been visited on Ireland's other three provinces. From the very outset of the rebellion, Ulster had seen vicious clashes between broken men like the O'Neills, Scottish planters backed by Covenanter armies, and new English planters with their backers in Westminster. Leinster to the east had also seen its fair share of fighting, as multiple Confederate armies marched on Dublin in the course of the war. And finally, Munster to the south had played host to a violent three-way competition for local power between the Butler family, Lord Inchiquin, and the Boyles. Connaught had its own local conflicts that were exacerbated by Ireland's ruinous decade of war, but so far those conflicts hadn't drawn the attention of large armies on the march. This was in part due to the efforts of the Marquess of Clan Rickard. Ever since the initial rebellion of 1641, he had been an ambiguous figure. Like many old English aristocrats, Clan Rickard had opposed what he called the strange madness of the rebels. His family had deep roots in Connaught, but also retained their English identity. In fact, Clan Rickard had grown up in England, on the family's extensive estates there. In the initial stages of the rebellion, therefore, Clan Rickard held Galway, a key port on the west coast, for the crown. But Clan Rickard was no die-hard loyalist. He governed Galway in a way that might be familiar from our earlier explorations of the Civil War in England. You recall those neutrality pacts that many counties entered into at the outbreak of the war, like Yorkshire or Cornwall? These pacts weren't so much motivated by non-partisanship, but more by a hope that the national conflict would resolve itself before the violence spread to their neck of the woods, a kind of 17th century nimbyism. Clan Rickard took this same approach in Connaught and did his best to placate both the Crown and the rebels. In this, he was largely successful. Connaught didn't see the levels of violence inflicted on other parts of Ireland, in part because the Stuart plantations weren't as prevalent in the West. As events in Ulster demonstrated, resentments over plantations were a terrifying accelerant. In fact, despite informally cooperating with Confederation officials, Clan Rickard didn't officially ally himself with the rebel government until 1648, when he joined the Broad Engagement Coalition against Parliament. But even so, the interests of Connaught came before everything else. Remember when Haber McMahon called on his compatriots in Connaught to help him in the Ulster campaign? It was Clan Rickard who refused to march. With Commonwealth soldiers attacking on all fronts, he decided to save his men and resources for the defense of Connaught. So while the Royalists in Ireland had their new leader, he was hardly one likely to unite the kingdom's Catholics in a glorious war of liberation. Getting rid of Ormond hadn't solved the fundamental problem that had faced the Irish since 1641. 
the uneasy but necessary partnership between the pragmatic Old English aristocrats and the more radical elements of the Catholic Church. While the Royalist coalition, such as it was, reorganized its leadership over the winter of 1650-1651, the Commonwealth occupiers also turned their attention to political matters. Henry Ireton was as much a politician as a soldier. You may remember him as the driving force behind the army's constitutional negotiations with Parliament in 1648 and the subsequent purges. So it was fitting that Ireton's job in Ireland had both military and political elements to it. Not only was he tasked with finally suppressing the rebels, but he had to figure out how the Commonwealth would govern Ireland once the fighting was over. In this, Ireton was aided by a group of three commissioners that Westminster sent to Dublin to act as a temporary executive for Ireland. Leading the commissioners was Edmund Ludlow, the radical MP who had helped Ireton orchestrate the purge. You may recall Ludlow as the guy who provided Ireton with a list of men to exclude from Parliament in December 1648. This previous working relationship between Ireton and Ludlow was both a blessing and a curse. In broad strokes, the two men had plenty of similarities. Both could be described as radicals in both a political and religious sense, and both had also thought a great deal about constitutional reform. And as we've seen in the past, Ireland was a useful laboratory for political systems and methods, honing them for application in England. But while from a distance Ireton and Ludlow seemed to be on the same page, a closer look revealed some real conflicts. They had organized the purge together, sure, but you may recall that it had been far from a happy partnership. Ireton anticipated that the purge would lead to the dissolution of Parliament and new elections. In fact, Ludlow had talked Ireton out of just dissolving the session by force. But Ludlow and his fellow Republicans in the rump hadn't followed through. Two years on, and the rump was still sitting. The root of the conflict between the two men lay in the details of the radicalism. Ireton advocated for what you might call radical reform rather than revolution. Remember, he was the guy who angered the levelers when, in the Putney debates, he argued against universal manhood suffrage. Ludlow, on the other hand, came from the even more radical wing of the radical wing. In bringing up this conflict between Ireton and Ludlow, I'm setting the stage for future episodes in Ireland. For reasons that will become apparent by the end of this episode, Ireton's future would not be determined by the partnership between Ireton and Ludlow. But the conflict between the radical and pragmatic wings of the Commonwealth government they represented would be the defining feature of Irish politics for the next 10 years. So, get ready for that. Rather than simplifying our Irish story, the Commonwealth conquest will bring new factional divides that will add yet another layer on top of the already bewildering array of warring parties that was 17th century Ireland. As for our immediate concerns in the winter of 1650-1651, Ireton and Ludlow faced two problems. First, figuring out how to fight a conventional war in Connaught come the spring, while at the same time battling a guerrilla insurgency in their rear. And the second, perhaps related problem, was how a radical Puritan regime could govern a majority Catholic nation. Since they couldn't establish a stable Irish government until the Royalists had been broken, the military problem was the obvious place to start. Ireton had no doubt that the Royalists in Connaught were no match for his men. The New Model Army had again and again proven its superior quality against Irish opposition. But could he keep his army supplied through a summer of campaigning? Reinforcements from England would be limited. Westminster's priority was still the Scottish War. As a reminder, as Ireton went over his plans that winter, the Scots were crowning Charles II and preparing for an invasion. Between 1649 and 1651, roughly 43,000 English soldiers landed in Ireland. About a third of them died, mostly of disease. In the past year, Ireton had been reinforced with 7,000 men, but even that wasn't enough to counterbalance the men lost to illness. Keeping an army well supplied in Ireland was simply impossible. 
In large part, this was due to the devastation a decade of war had wrought. Between 1641 and 1651, Ireland's population dropped from around 1.5 million to around 1.2. Most of the decline was a product of armies and militias, destroying farms and filling Ireland with refugees in search of safe harbour. Altogether, around four-fifths of Ireland's arable land was sitting unused. The Irish economy may as well have not existed. This was the German experience of the Thirty Years' War that the English had mostly avoided in the 1640s. But quite aside from the humanitarian crisis, Ireton was concerned that Ireland simply couldn't produce all the food, clothes, and equipment his army needed. All supplies would have to come from England, which itself would face an invasion that summer. Compounding the problem were the Tories. What few supply convoys Ireton had were constantly attacked by guerrilla fighters, far from the front lines. In order to properly control the territory he had already conquered, Ireton estimated that he would need to use every man available for garrison duty leaving no one to do the fighting in Connaught. The Commonwealth response to the Tory problem reveals the blind spots in contemporary military thinking. The conquerors simply couldn't figure out how to deal with a guerrilla insurrection. In fact, the English officially classified the Tories as a civil disorder problem, not a military one. As a result, Edmund Ludlow and his civilian commissioners took the lead, rather than Ireton. The Tories were especially dangerous where they had nearby bogs or forests to retreat to after their raids. The mountains around Wicklow, less than 20 miles south of Dublin, were a particularly useful hideout for the raiders. This was especially troubling because Dublin was an important node in the army supply network. It was a constant source of frustration that supply convoys seemed to be at their most vulnerable, so close to the seat of the Commonwealth's Irish government. The raids continued all winter, effectively shutting down the Commonwealth's attempt to revive Ireland's commercial networks. Moving goods from one place to another wasn't safe for a quartermaster or a merchant alike. Edmund Ludlow's administration in Dublin approached the problem in a way that might be familiar to modern counterinsurgency strategists. Their central assumption was that the Tories were operating with the cooperation of local civilians. Since the raiders themselves were too elusive to fight, Ludlow targeted these civilian accomplices. He created safe zones in a two-mile radius around all Commonwealth garrisons. Within that area, anyone likely to sympathize with the rebels had 15 days to leave their homes. This included anyone whose parents, husbands, sons, or brothers were actively participating in the rebellion. Ludlow's order also included anyone who lived in any woods, bogs, or other places that might be useful to the Tories. Once abandoned, these homes and cottages would be destroyed, preventing the Tories from using them. However, this program failed to achieve much, in part because the army, who had to actually enforce the directive, simply didn't have the manpower to do so. Where people were evacuated, the Tories simply found new hiding spots. Ludlow achieved little aside from displacing yet more people and alienating those locals not already alienated from the Commonwealth regime. Undeterred, Ludlow doubled down on his strategy in the new year. Some safe zones around garrisons were upgraded to what a modern state might call free fire zones. These were, officially, declared to be places and persons accepted and excluded from the protection of the Parliament and Commonwealth of England. In other words, in certain designated areas, the regular rules of law, or even war, didn't apply. Soldiers were authorized to shoot anyone on sight. The directive took effect on the 10th of April, 1651, hopefully coinciding with a new push into Connaught. Anyone who didn't wish to be mistaken for a rebel was advised to find a new home before then. Once again, this harsh measure seems to have been more effective at alienating the population than snuffing out the Tories, an outcome Henry Ireton saw coming. Ludlow's free fire zones worked against Ireton's longer-term goals. 
Like King James's longtime general slash viceroy in Ireland, Arthur Chichester, Ireton saw that for rule from England to work, the Irish had to be willing participants. Like Chichester, Ireton was no friend to either the Irish or the Catholics. He had willingly participated in the massacres at Drogheda and Wexford. But he now had an eye on the future governance of Ireland. As a practical matter, the Commonwealth regime couldn't afford to make an enemy of every man, woman, and child in Ireland. Meanwhile, the Marcus of Clan Rickert over in Connaught took a similarly dim view of the guerrilla war. He worried that innocent civilians were paying the price for Tory raids, and as a landed aristocrat, he had little sympathy for thieves and brigands. More importantly, these men could serve the cause better by coming to Connaught and fighting the invaders head-on. Because by the spring of 1651, the New Model Army was once again on the march. Clan Rickert would need every man he could get. Ireton's strategy for 1651 consisted of two movements. First, he ordered Charles Coote's Ulster Army to cross the Shannon in the north and threaten Clan Rickert's home base of Galway. This was mostly intended as a distraction to prevent the rebels from concentrating on the real prize, Limerick. But even after Limerick had been isolated, the second move, which Ireton led himself, was no easy task. Just like Worcester, which Cromwell took in September of that year, Limerick was well-positioned on the water. And, just like his longtime mentor, Ireton decided that he needed to surround the enemy on both banks of the river. Some of his men crossed the Shannon north of Limerick, and by June, he had the town surrounded. Once this was accomplished, the supply situation improved. As Limerick sat near the mouth of the Shannon, provisions could be brought in by sea, bypassing the tenuous supply lines through the Irish countryside. Still, a quick assault was preferable to a prolonged siege. Ireton didn't want to spend the whole summer on Limerick and delay the conquest of Connaught until the following year. Unsurprisingly, forcing Ireton to do precisely that was royalist strategy. Clan Rickard had no hope of defeating the new model army, so his best bet was to draw out the war so long that the Commonwealth simply gave up. And so long as the king had an army on English soil, that seemed like a realistic possibility. For Ireton, the first step to capturing Limerick was securing the fortified suburbs on the eastern bank of the Shannon. Within them was the one bridge linking Limerick to the mainland. The new model army achieved this almost immediately, but the royalists managed to withdraw in good order and destroyed the bridge in the process. Still hoping to win a quick victory, Ireton organized an amphibious assault on the well-defended island town. But it was an ill-advised gamble. Most of the men got lost in a dense fog and failed to engage the enemy which was probably for the best. A few days later, Ireton resigned himself to a siege. The navy brought the big guns up the Shannon, and the new model army got to work. But Limerick's island fortifications were something the English hadn't encountered before. The guns could blow holes in the walls, but getting men across the water into those holes was difficult. Ireton sat outside the town throughout July and August, seemingly achieving little. But as frustrated as Ireton was by his lack of progress, the civilians inside Limerick more than matched him with their growing terror. They knew the fate of towns that defied the new model army. The people of Drogheda and Wexford had been butchered. The civilians of Waterford, on the other hand, were still sleeping soundly in their beds, thanks to the surrender terms negotiated by Thomas Preston. That was the model that the people of Limerick wanted to follow. In September, the leaders of the town approached the garrison commander, Hugh O'Neill. Surely they couldn't hold out forever. In fact, closed off from the rest of the world, starvation and disease were already starting to take a toll on the population. Now is the time to talk surrender terms, before the English decided to make another example out of them. But O'Neill held firm. If they could just hold out until the winter, Ireton would once again be forced to retire. Delay and attrition were their best instruments. O'Neill was backed by the Catholic clergy, 
who threatened to excommunicate anyone who collaborated with the enemy by negotiating. Ireton's stranglehold on Limerick was doing its work, though. In a repeat of the siege of Colchester in 1648, O'Neill tried to ease the burden on his rations by sending a group of women out of the town. And, just as at Colchester, the parliamentary general refused to let them pass, sending them back. When O'Neill refused to accept them, Ireton ordered his men to kill four of the women to show that he was serious. However, due to a misunderstanding, all 40 of the women in the group were executed. The incident did little to calm the nerves of the civilians hunkered down inside Limerick. Finally, on the 23rd of October, the tension in the town broke. Part of O'Neill's garrison mutinied, spurred on by Limerick's civilian leaders. They turned their guns on O'Neill and demanded that he open talks for surrender. Four days later, O'Neill accepted Ireton's terms. The people would be spared a sack, and the majority of the garrison were disarmed and allowed safe passage to Galway, where Clan Rickard was organizing the defense of Connaught. The leaders of the garrison, however, were summarily executed as traitors. All except O'Neill himself. He had been born in the Spanish Netherlands after the flight of the Earls, making him a subject of the Spanish crown. Charging him with treason was therefore somewhat complicated. Also, Ireton was well aware that the Commonwealth was trying to establish diplomatic recognition from Spain, events we covered in episode 2.68, the Commonwealth Navy. Dealing with Hugh O'Neill was obviously a sensitive matter, so Ireton shipped him back to the Tower of London, where higher-level decisions were made. Although there had been little in the way of combat, the Siege of Limerick exacted a terrible price. Within the town, around 4,000 people died from either starvation or the diseases it brought with it. The surrender of the town was a terrible blow for royalist morale. Clan Rickard still held Galway, and the siege had lasted long enough that he would now hold it through the winter. But the outcome of the war seemed a foregone conclusion at this point. News of the king's defeat at Worcester only confirmed this fatalism. But the English had suffered too, with more than 2,000 soldiers dying in the months-long siege. The most prominent of these casualties was Henry Ireton himself, who fell ill and died in November. Henry Ireton's death, at the age of 40, is one of the what-ifs of the Commonwealth period. If the purge and revolution that followed it had a founding father, a case could be made that it was Ireton. He drafted the army's constitutional demands in 1648, and he organized the coup that brought about the rump and the execution of the king. By contrast, Oliver Cromwell, who would go on to be the face of the new regime, had been far away from the main action throughout those crucial days in December 1648. Cromwell's political genius lay in the practical realm of managing factions, as well as his own persona. Ireton was the ideas man. That being said, the 1650s might not have looked that different if Ireton had lived. As we'll see, Cromwell soon partnered with other political thinkers, who were quite similar to Ireton. One of them, John Lambert, had actually worked with Ireton on the Constitutional Declarations of 1648, so there was a degree of continuity. Two qualities, though, distinguish Ireton from his successors. First was his relationship with Oliver Cromwell. Reading Cromwell's politics is always tricky, but there was likely an element of trust between him and Ireton that other leaders couldn't match. One of the running themes throughout the 1650s was Cromwell's dissatisfaction with the various political models on offer. He exacerbated this with his own tendency to react to immediate events before he had a sense of the big picture. Perhaps things would have been different with Henry Ireton at his side. Perhaps Ireton may have even brought some much-needed stability to England after Cromwell's untimely death, but that's getting way ahead of ourselves. Ireton's second feature worth noting was the laundry list of enemies he'd accumulated in his short political career. The levelers hated him for his opposition to universal manhood suffrage at the Putney debates. Meanwhile, many in the rump remembered Ireton as the man who had come within an inch of dissolving Parliament at gunpoint. 
Resentment for this had cost him a position on the Council of State. Had Ireton returned from Ireland a conquering hero and taken a prominent role in Commonwealth politics, the 1650s may have been even more contentious than they end up being. All of this is, of course, material that we'll get into in good time. Unfortunately, poor Henry Ireton won't be joining us on that trip. To return to 1651, the fall of Limerick capped off a devastating year for young Charles II, who now returned to being the exile king, a role he seemed destined to play forever. His hopes had evaporated in both Scotland and Ireland. In a sense, it was a familiar story. His father had also failed in his attempt to use his lesser kingdoms to recapture the real prize, England. This Charles, however, still had his head. Upon his return to the continent in the fall of 1651, he contemplated his options. For years, the Stuart kings had tried to use every tool at their disposal to retake the throne. Scottish Covenanters, Irish Catholics, their fellow monarchs in Europe, Each one had failed. Perhaps it was time to listen to the one man who had always advised against turning to foreigners. Next time, we'll follow Charles's lead and turn our attention to the consummate constitutional royalist, Edward Hyde. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.